The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live with Mike Pudu. In for Graham Hill. Very good evening to you, New Zealand. How are you today, this Saturday? It's Mike Puddy filling in for Graham Hill on the Weekend Variety Wireless. Fantastic to have your company no matter where you are in the country, whether you're listening online, overseas as well. Yes, Graham Hill is away. He's he's involved with some crew murder thing, which we'll investigate tomorrow night as well. Uh, so that's why he is away. He said, can you fill in? And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I started... Well, putting the show together, I realised just how intelligent that man Graham Hill is. I'm way out of my league, but I'm one of those guys that is up for a challenge, and my brain is just full, simply from putting the show together. And I just want to, well, share all that information with you. But it's not about me, it's about the fantastic guests that we have. Coming up very soon, it's Astronomy with Grant Christie, and a way in which you can see some beautiful sights with just your binoculars. How cool is that? We talk movies with James Crute after eight, after nine rather. Uh, the movies we're covering tonight, Ocean's Eight, and also potentially the scariest movie of all time, Hereditary. Did it live up to expectation for James? Max Cryer is in with the origins of words and we've also got human statistics and Don McGlashan coming up so sit back relax and welcome to the show oh so nice to have the weekend here isn't it so nice to be filling in too on this show it's just incredible this show if you if you get sick of me the plonker filling in for Graham Hill you can always go and listen to a podcast but you know you might learn something new tonight I'll tell you something I will try and play for you, though, a little later on. It's a little little documentary. It's only about five, five, six minutes long. A little documentary about field days. I was at field days recently. First time I've ever been. Quite a spectacle, isn't it? Hundreds of thousands of people. A lot of money. Some great new innovations in the farming community. But more importantly, just a great chance for the people of Waikato to, <laughs> to grab a bargain. That's right. And I'll, I'll get the chance. I will play that documentary for you very soon. So welcome to the show. We talk astronomy with Grant Christie next. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live with Mike Pudu. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. I am very excited. Weekend Variety Wireless. I'm filling in for Graham Hill. And Dr. Grant Christie joins me now. How are you, Grant? I'm very well, Mike. I'm not, I want to know a little bit more about you because I've listened to Graham Hill and you, uh, but I don't know too much about your background because I obviously didn't jump on the bandwagon 12 years ago. So, so fill me in and everybody else that's joined us this weekend. Oh, well, uh, I've had a huge interest in astronomy basically all my life um, and uh, started off when I was at school, built telescopes, got into astronomy. It's never really left me behind. What, um, what sparked your interest? Oh, I don't know. It just, uh, it just seemed tremendously exciting. I, I, I ended up uh, at the age of 14 buying a book at a second-hand shop about, that showed pictures of galaxies from the 
um, the Palomar telescope, which was a big telescope of the yes, day. Yes. And I just it just blew my mind, and I just started reading more and more, and just haven't stopped, unfortunately. <laughs> and, and this is how you make your money nowadays, is yeah, it? Yeah. Well, I've I've run uh, the research programs at the Auckland Observatory Stardome, and uh, you know I've been been doing that for quite some time. So that's we, that's we where I've seen your name before. That's right. Yeah, so oh. we pursue uh, all sorts of interesting things there. We work with teams from around the world. Uh, so even though we've got a relatively small telescope, it's uh, we're in a good place on the Earth to use it. Are we in a good place, actually? Yeah, because the New Zealand's surrounded by ocean, so right. there's no room for other telescopes. So, you know, places like North America, there's heaps of telescopes. South America, heaps of telescopes. But, uh, you know, once objects get over New Zealand, there's only a couple of telescopes can look at them. So we provide a vital link between the big telescopes in South America and the big ones in Australia and South Africa. So, you know, so New Zealand's an important piece of real estate in the Southern Hemisphere for studying objects that need multiple telescopes, and that's often what does. You know, you don't, astronomers often don't just look at, you know, one thing by themselves. They're, they're usually coordinated with other observatories today with email and everything else. Everything's coordinated. And so that you can get lots of telescopes and follow things for 24 hours. As right. the Earth turns, you can keep the thing in watch because it gets handed on to one telescope around the Earth as the, night, as the uh, Earth turns. So you always keep the object in view. So each observatory might sort of get sort of five, eight hours, something like that, of night time. And then the next one down the chain for us, the one's beyond us or Australia, um, then Western Australia, then South Africa. See, and this is why I love the show, because I had no idea about that. See, I know, I'm taking it right back to basics. How long have you been doing um, radio with Graham for? Oh, about 12 years. Oh, I see, 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 everybody that knows has probably heard all this before. <laughs> but it's good to remind people, isn't it, Grant? Good to remind yeah. people. Um, what about funding? Uh, you know, how, how are you funded? Could you do with some more cash? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've we, it's run on the shell of a, smell of an oily rag. Right. Um, just myself and Tim Natush, who's on the faculty at AUT University. He and I have worked together for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the research programs at the observatory, um, but uh, we is, it, is it hard squeezing money out of the government? Uh, do well, more? the observatory gets funding, but a lot of it doesn't come our way. I mean, the a lot of the stuff the research done is done on you know really pretty minimal budgets. Right. So. Right, okay. um, but we, often our collaborators can provide us with equipment, which is a big saving because some of the equipment's fairly expensive. And Ohio State University, for example, provided us quite a lot of stuff on a project we're involved with them with. Brilliant. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so often our collaborators are better funded than we are. A lot right. <laughs> oh, thank you to the collaborators. Because um, that's what it's all about, collaborating together. And some exciting news this week, really, isn't there? I mean, the dust storm on Mars, that's pretty big news. We're going to talk about that this, uh, this, uh, this evening. Uh, also, we're going to talk about what's going on with um, organic compounds found in ancient, ancient rocks on Mars. Because yes. you can learn a lot from all this. Absolutely. Well, they're slowly piecing things together. That's the great thing. I mean, it's uh, step by step, and uh, the the projects on Mars are just so exciting. There's a whole lot of new um, hardware on its way to Mars. Some of it's in orbit around Mars, and we haven't seen the new results from that yet. But uh, um, the uh, there's you know they're, they're actually step by step getting closer to answering the question is was there ever life on mars and that's really the big question oh. at the moment there's tantalizing sort of uh, bits we know more about the old climate of mars yes uh, it uh, once had oceans or huge lakes uh, as with and the sediments we can see today on the surface and we know that they're sort of surface um, sediments left over from large lakes uh, that have you know that dried up sort of like three billion years ago um, and uh, so, so that's what they're exploring. They're exploring those environments where 
on Earth you would have expected to find life. Right. So will we find it on Mars? It's still an open question, but it's... Uh, well, we're getting closer, aren't we? We're getting closer We're getting closer year. and closer. I love it. Okay, let's start off, though, because I know Graham does this, his astronomical pick of the week. What have you got for us? Yeah, well, this is a, uh, a nice little video that, um, uh, that really helps you sort of think about the scales of things. And that's the biggest problem pe most people have with astronomy. They you start talking about, you know, light years or, you know, millions of light years. And, you know, how can you even begin to think about something that size or the, how far it is to the nearest galaxy from us and all that sort of stuff. Well, so, there's been some great movies that have helped us out, but probably not scientific movies. Yeah, well, it starts off with something fairly small, you know, sort of down the size of the moon and just goes up in a steady size saying, well, that's the moon size and mm -hmm. that's the size of uh, the planets in the solar system, the Earth, and right on up to Jupiter. Um, and then up to the sun and then comparing the size of the sun to other stars, many of which we know are much bigger than the sun. The sun's sort of quite average, but there's a, a whole lot of stars that are enormously bigger. And that when you see them on the screen and see how much bigger they are, it's just, uh, you know, if you're, some of these stars, if you put them in the middle of our solar system, their, their boundaries would be, be out by the planet Mars somewhere. They're enormous. And uh, so it helps with the visualisation of those scales. Well, I tell you what, we're going to put that video on um, on our website, on our Facebook page as well, uh, because it is it's phenomenal, and I love it. Beautifully done, too, I thought. Yeah, music by Vangelis. It might not be everyone's taste. Just turn the music oh, off. It's yeah. a bit pretty... pretty uh, <laughs> no, I like the pretty music. Pretty racy I love music. It. <laughs> I love the music. Not your cup of tea, the music? Well, well I like Vangelis, but that just sort of got a bit long. <laughs> No, but go and check that out. Um, you know, it is, it is fascinating, I guess, trying to put, you know, size and distance into perspective. And this is one video that will certainly do it for you. So that is your astronomical pick of the week. Uh, so let's talk more about this dust storm on Mars. Right, well, this has just been brewing. I mean, at the end of May, it was first started to show up in a little basin on Mars. And Mars has an atmosphere that's only about 1% the density of Earth's atmosphere. So it's very thin atmosphere. Okay. But the Mars is exceedingly dry. So it doesn't take much wind to start blowing up dust. The dust is very fine. It gets into the atmosphere. And then there seems to be a sort of a runaway effect. Uh, once uh, the dust is in the atmosphere, uh, the atmosphere, it just accelerates the winds. So, so the presence of dust in there actually traps heat and that actually makes the atmosphere more active. And so it becomes a sort of a lot like a, a sort of runaway effect. Okay. Yeah, so, makes sense. Um, so, you know, astronomers observed, uh, have observed uh, dust storms on Mars before and they sometimes rapidly grow and cover the entire planet at once. So the whole planet just becomes enshrouded in a huge cloud of dust and you can't see anything. And, and if you're on the surface of the planet, you know, you'd best have permanent night until it cleared. And it usually it can take uh, months to clear. How often do the dust storms occur? Well, on probably sort of a... The, um, the, the, there was a big one in like in 2001 um, prior to the arrival of Spirit and Opportunity. Okay. Uh, Spirit and Opportunity being through a couple. Yes. Um, what happens when those occur, when they start to lose solar energy because that's how they stay alive. Right. They sort of kind of hunker down, shut down until only their clock's going on board until they, the dust clears and then they sort of can uh, get some solar energy, charge up their batteries and carry on. So at the that, moment... That's impressive. Yeah, yeah, so Spirit's been dead for a long time, but Opportunity's still working and it's now closed down. They're not getting any signals from Opportunity because of the dust storm. Right. Um, and now they're just waiting to see whether it comes out of this comatose state uh, once the dust finally clears. At the moment, it's spreading. It covers about a quarter of the planet at the present time. Good grief. Um, but it can accelerate within days and end up covering the entire planet. 
Um, so at the moment, um, it's it's interesting to p- people who study Mars to sort of watch this phenomenon. Mm. But uh, we're also at a crucial time for Mars because uh, around about the end of uh, end of July, there's going to be the Earth and Mars will be very close together. They'll be the closest since 2001. Uh, oh, that, 2003, I beg your pardon. Okay, that's exciting. So, um, and that's close to as close as the two planets ever get. So Mars seems much bigger and brighter in the sky, and it's really the, it's only about a month either side of that time, every sort of 16, 17 years, that you actually get a really good view of Mars. You think you go out there and look at Mars any time, but most of the time Mars is so far away and tiny that you get yes. a r- rubbish view through a telescope. Right. But, so it's only these close, what we call oppositions, when the Earth overtakes Mars on the inside track, um, and swings close. It's going to be about 57 million kilometres away, right. uh, which is actually close. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the point we were making before, you know, well, how far is that? That's you know? right. That's yes. actually close. That's as close as Earth and Mars ever get together. Good grief. Okay, uh, so, so if we've got little telescopes so at home, it's probably a good chance to get them out yeah, as well. Yeah, and or go to your local observatory. There's observatories around the country and they'll be open. It's a big deal uh, for that. And, yeah. and in 2003, Mars was actually closer to Earth than any time in the previous 60,000 years. Uh, so 2003, uh, huge numbers of the of New Zealanders went to their local observatories to look at Mars, just because it was a unique time uh, to see it. Uh, you know, you wouldn't see it any better than that. And then the other thing to bear in mind in the southern hemisphere, uh, of these close oppositions, Mars is high in our sky. So if you live in the northern hemisphere, tough luck. It's going to be low down in the sky. You'll get a rubbish view through the atmosphere. Okay. But uh, so people in the northern hemisphere actually come down to the southern hemisphere, Mars enthusiasts, to get a really good view of Mars during those brief windows when we see it well. Brilliant. So, you know, we're in the box seat. Okay, good. So, and if I wanted to come and uh, to catch up with you and, and have a look at this, do, do I need to book? Or how do I do yeah, that? Yeah, well, you know, if you're in Auckland, you go to Stardome Observatory, you can ring up and uh, make a uh, booking there yeah. and go along. Uh, they've got lots of telescopes. Um, and similarly, in, you know, Carter Observatory in Wellington and there's other observatories around the uh, the country. People will know their own ones in their own part of the country. So just go and uh, say hi. Um some of them will just be chuffed to have you come and look through your t- their telescope. They're, you know, well, astronomers well, are very sharing with that. Yeah, no, well, no, they, they do love to share, but very rare opportunities. And I guess when things like this happen and we talk about it and people are aware of it, then it just piques that interest, doesn't it? Absolutely. And people get involved in it. We're talking astronomy with Grant Christie. Uh, great to have him here. Okay, what else have you got for us today? Oh, just one other thing about Mars is Mars, is, you, we think of it as red, but when it actually gets enshrouded in dust, it just sort of goes a yellowy colour. So we, if oh, I'm you disappointed. Can, you, can see, you can see Mars up in the sky right now. Yes. Um, it rises around about, um, well, um, by about midnight, it's up about halfway up the sky or so in the east. It's very bright. It's sort of reddy colour. Um, so if you want to get out and see Mars, that's easy to see, and it's just going to get rising earlier and earlier each night and getting brighter as it's, we're getting closer to it. But, you know, so you'll see it's still red, but what uh, um, the, the story is that the, the red colour will get weakened because we won't be able to see the red surface so much with all the dust in the atmosphere. And it, it actually produces more of a yellow tinge. So anyway. Oh, no, that, that, I love that. Okay, cool. So I didn't even know it changes colour. Didn't even know about the dust storms and didn't realise that it doesn't come as close uh, to the Earth uh, as often as I'd probably like. You no, know, so that's you right. It's surprising, it. actually. All, yeah. Everything they knew about Mars comes from these brief windows 
you know, astronomers around the world know to look, that's the time to look at Mars and big telescopes were built just to look at Mars during those periods and back in the sort of 19th century and even up until sort of relatively modern times, 1950s, that right. was still the case. But now, of course, we've got satellites there, of course, you know, it's a different world. It is a different world, all right. Okay, solstice is coming up, 21st of June, isn't it? That's right. It falls at, uh, well, precisely, it's actually going to be 10.07 in the evening on the 21st of June. Um, so the solstice means that the sun uh, is as far north as it gets, mm -hmm. um, and that means it'll be, in fact, it'll be overhead on the Tropic of Cancer. So if you live, happen to be on the Tropic of Cancer, then that's the, the tropic in the northern hemisphere, We've got the Capricorn in the southern hemisphere. Right. So that's so when it's overhead on the tropical of Capricorn, it's our midsummer day. I'm just uh, you can't but, see me in the studio, but Grant's probably <laughs> laughing at me, so I'm trying to work yeah, out yeah, where well, we are and what we're yeah, doing. So yeah. you've got the you know the two solstices, which are the sort of extremes where the sun's either furthest north or furthest south, south. in the okay. sky, um, and of course that caused by the fact that the Earth is tilted over on its axis by 23 degrees, that creates the seasons, and so. Yeah. Okay. okay. And, and what does that mean? So it'll be, is it our so, shortest day? Well, it, it'll be the shortest day, yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Oh, we um, like that. Oh, do you like a short day? Uh, do you like, long? like short days because the nights are long. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, yeah, that's right. You know, so that's it's, a a, it's a highlight of our year. <laughs> <laughs> we hate the summer solstice. <laughs> I never thought of it like that, but you're right. I, I don't mind a short day as well, you know, hunkered down at home. But that's now, right. you're piquing my interest. Uh, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back in a minute. It is Radio Live. It's the weekend variety wireless. It's Mike Puru filling in for Graham Hill. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Weekend Variety Wireless with Mike Putty filling in for Graham Hill. He's taking a well-earned break this weekend. We are talking astronomy with Grant Christie, who joins us now. And they've found, Grant, some organic compounds in ancient rock on Mars. Uh, what, what does that all mean? OK, so the big question that we have with Mars is, was the life there originally? Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like it could have been. There are, we know there's been lakes. We know that Mars once had a, a much denser atmosphere. It's now lost most of its atmosphere, so it's very dry, arid desert now. But did it in this first few billion years of its existence have, uh, you know, did life evolve and form there? Um, because if we can ever prove that, then it means that there must be life just about everywhere. If it had independently happened on two planets in our solar system, and possibly more places in our solar system, then it must be everywhere in the cosmos. Yes, I mean, and, so, and so that's a logical. very important question. Probably yeah. the outstanding scientific question of our day, probably, to get this question, answer to this question. So there's a huge amount of efforts going in to try to see, look at the rocks on Mars and see whether there's any evidence of life in them. Now, when you start looking at life forms that are like two billion years old, mm. uh, you know, the, well, three billion years into the past, and uh, they, we're only talking about sort of single cellular organisms. We're not talking about anything with sort of backbones or anything like that. Right. We're not going to find a, an arm sticking out of a rock <laughs> face somewhere. Right. Um, but uh, these organisms, like algae, things like that, yeah. would have left chemical signatures in their rocks. True. Um, but it's really hard to know what the chemical signatures are because very few of the Earth's rocks that old survives. There's some in Western Australia and Dr. Uh, uh, Professor Kathy Campbell from University of Auckland, that's one of her specialty stuff. She often talks about this stuff uh, and, uh, you know, is a world expert. I was going to say, she's one of the best in the world, yeah, isn't she? she? Is. Yes. And uh, so they, they've found rocks in Western Australia that have similar 
um, environments to what they're looking at in Mars, and she's sort of working as sort of linking these two together. So, so they're trying to learn from the Earth rocks what sort of chemicals you'd expect to see in the rocks okay, that to indicate sense. their life there. But at the moment, they're not quite at that stage on Mars because the sort of ability to analyse the chemistry of rocks on Mars is still quite limited. We've only got Curiosity, basically, mm-hmm. the, uh, the sort of rover. Rover, yes. Okay, it's got a chemical lab on board, but nowhere near sophisticated enough to do this sort of stuff. We need a sample return mission in the future. <laughs> well, that's, no, well, I was just going to ask you that. So clearly, what they just drill in, they take a little sample, they put it in their own laboratory on board. Curiosity. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the big kick here has just been that uh, just uh, Curiosity's got a drill on board, yeah. but it it developed a fault and they hadn't been able to use it for a while. But now the engineers have figured out a way to get it acting, working again. Brilliant. And so they've now been able to do some dr- a little bit of drilling. It only goes down an inch or two into right. the into the ground. I mean, so that's not very deep. Um, so. Uh, but it's a start, isn't it? It's a start. It? And yes. so they've actually got evidence of, of fragments of, of organic material that could have been formed by just natural stuff that happens in rocks, nothing to do with life at all, but just the, the coincidence of having these different sort of organic materials in the rocks is suggestive of, of big organic molecules that have been broken up. Right. Now, what breaks them up? Cosmic rays. So okay. cosmic rays from the universe, very very highly energetic rays, have mm-hmm. been pelting Mars for all its life. The Earth has a magnetic field, and so most of the cosmic rays don't hit the Earth's surface, so Earth is reasonably protected. But in its early time, Mars would have been irradiated with cosmic rays uh, as well. Zapped, um, so to speak. And, so, and, so, and also the... Have, and when the rocks all dried out and these life forms became extinct on the surface, um, then these cosmic rays continue to break up these organic molecules into little pieces. Right. And so we're seeing the little pieces and trying to figure out, well, what were they when they were together? When, you know, could they have been from a living organism? So these are questions that probably won't be answered immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a spacecraft, uh, NASA's got a spacecraft that they're going to land on... Uh, um, oh, I beg your pardon, the Europeans have got a spacecraft they're going to land on um, Mars, Mars, and it's yep. got a drill that'll go down several metres. Um, basically, the universe sterilises the soil of Mars, the surface layer, down to about a metre. OK, so we and need so to go further Curiosity than what we're doing. Near yes, deep enough right. to do that. This one is going to go down several metres. And so they're going to get down to pristine rocks that have been sort of shielded from cosmic rays for the last three billion years. And so they're going to get samples that are probably much more representative of what would have been there three billion years ago. Well, would it not be easy to bring the samples back, or is that too difficult? No, well, that's the, 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 the they're actually going to be collecting samples for a future return mission. So currently, ah, nice. they've got no, they can collect them and hold them uh, in a container, and then some future spacecraft's going to come take that container back to Earth. Um, and that might well happen before, while well, they're talking about sending people there. Um, of course, they're going to be bringing people back. They'll bring samples back, presumably, if that ever happens. Ooh. Um, oh, that's so exciting, though. Would you go on a mission if no. you wouldn't? Why not? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll leave that to other people. Um, <laughs> you just want the samples, basically, though. Basically, yeah, yeah. well, once you get outside the magnetic field of the Earth, the problem is that you're suddenly getting dosed with cosmic radiation, okay. which we're protected from on Earth. Uh, and, you know, that's going to break up molecules. We don't actually know what's going to happen to a human body after that long. We've only had 12 human beings outside the magnetic field of the Earth in history. Those were the 12 that went to the moon. 
I can't and did not know that. So, and they were only there for a relatively short time. Mm-hmm. But if you're sitting out in the middle of space for, you know, Mars isn't protected, your spacecraft's not going to be protected, these things will go straight through a spacecraft. So you're a sitting duck, basically. <laughs> okay. But, you know, there's people that don't care. They, they, they'd <laughs> rather true. go there. And even if they get a bit uh, knocked around with cosmic rays, they say, what the hell? Oh, yeah, well, no, doing it for the science, really. That's right. Well, doing I mean, it for the science. Yeah, well, that's why there's people that are happy to go to Mars and not come back again. Yeah, well, true. You know, so, um, you know, for the same reason. I mean... The life has meaning, I guess, uh, if you do that. But I'm a bit of a wuss, so I No, that's all right. No, no, we, we, we'll just analyse the samples. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what we just need to do. Just send back the information. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. See you later. <laughs> OK, cool. And, and what's next? What's Clark Exobelt? Oh, the Clark Exobelt. Now, this is interesting. This is a, uh, an idea that uh, Arthur C. Clarke once had. I mean, that his idea was that, you know, you could put up uh, satellites orbiting the Earth, um, and in a particular orbit that um, called a geostationary orbit, which is uh, basically about 36,000 kilometres from Earth, where as, at that orbital, at that distance, satellites orbit at exactly the same speed the Earth turns. So satellites appear to stay exactly over the same part okay. of the Earth. Yep. So you only need a few satellites around that orbit to ping... Cover everything. Cover the whole world, basically. Okay. And of course, it's, well, it's now they're finding lots of uses for it, so our... Uh, geosynchronous orbital band is getting fairly crowded. But anyway, the idea of this Clark, what's called an exobelt, is that uh, an advanced civilization, maybe centuries, thousands of years beyond ours, will still be using their that that satellite okay, system cool. because it's, it's just so, I mean, so basic that you know, any civilization would want to do that. Um, and uh, and they're likely to have a lot more stuff in their exo, in their belt than what we do. And so... Oh, so, that's exciting. So, that, so that it would be like, um, imagine the planet Saturn's got rings around it. Yeah. So, um, okay, that's dusty, icy stuff, uh, and it's spread out in a big sort of, all spread out. But if you imagine it concentrated into a ring, then when a planet that has a dense exobelt goes across in front of its star, mm. we see a little dip in brightness. That's how we find planets now. We wait and watch stars until they have a little dip in their brightness. We can't see the planet, but we can see the little dip. Okay. And it keeps happening. Every time it goes around its orbit, we see another little dip and another little dip. That's what the Kepler Space Telescope is doing. Right. Now, if it's got an exobelt, its dip will have a different shape. Ooh, okay. Because now it's got this dense sort of stuff that's knocking out light from the star. So the, the, the shape of the dip looks different. And these people have modelled it, calculated what it would look like. Uh, we, we're not capable, we haven't got telescopes capable of doing that yet, but there's telescopes being constructed that in the future will be able to do that routinely. So what you're basically saying is that if we spot that dip in the shape in the exobelt... It tells you something, doesn't it? It does. It tells you. Shit, I love the show. There's, there's, <laughs> there's somebody there, knock, knock. And so, you know, so that's... Um, so that's what that's what it's all about. Oh, and and so how how long will it take for them to get the I guess you know technology to do that? Are we well, talking? Well, no, no. I think this this within a few decades probably okay, they'll be okay, in a position good. where this could be done. And, and people are obviously already thinking about it. The sums have been done that and uh, the ability you, you need to look at a huge number of stars in order to find ones that happen to go across in front of their. Uh, only one, I mean, just on random, uh, around about only one percent of stars will have the orbital plane of their planets 
aligned so that we see transit. So okay. most stars, we don't see them because they're orbiting in some other direction. Right. So we, we see the transit of Venus, for example, and Mercury because they happen to be, you know, we're looking in that same orbital plane. You have to be looking in the orbital plane of the solar system to see their planets. If going in front of their star. So, but that's all right. No, even if you're only looking at 1% of the stars in our galaxy, that's a heap of stars. It is, right? yes. So, and they've got telescopes now that are sort of going to be um, robotically run. It'll just be measuring these all the stars. I mean, we've got star, plan, uh, there's telescopes doing that now. Um, I can I can see why you love this, Grant, because oh. it is exciting, isn't it? Well, it's, and every every week there's something new. I mean, it's not as if it's accelerating rapidly, and uh, so it's a fascinating uh, area to be involved in. Well, God bless the weekend variety wireless, because you know <laughs> this is your chance to get deeply involved in it, like me. I, I'm I'm getting excited. Can you see the glint in my oh, eye? I can. It's like a little star. Um, speaking of stars, Tabby's star. Tell me more about that. Okay, now Tabby's star was one of the stars that the Kepler Space Telescope looked at. So Kepler Space Telescope was launched uh, and it was just looking at one big chunk of s sky mm -hmm. constantly taking in uh, measurements every 30 minutes round the clock for about three years, measuring the brightness of about uh, 150,000 stars. And the idea was out of those stars, we, some of them are going to, we're going to see their planets pass in front. And so it found, you know, about four to 5,000 planets uh, orbiting stars in its sample and was only looking at one piece of sky. Um, Good grief. So, and so the astronomers were looking for the characteristic little dip, short dip of brightness, maybe lasting about six hours when a planet would transit across its star. So yes. they were looking for particular things. But they opened it up to amateurs to look at this data set as well. And amateurs um, found this object, um, which is now nicknamed Tabby Star. It does have a big catalogue number. I won't bore you with that. <laughs> but um, we'll just call it Tabby Star. But uh, it had a weird sort of change, series of brightness changes over the three or four years they were looking at it. And it's unprecedented. There's no other star that's been seen to change in that way. And astronomers are sort of trying to figure out what, what, what that means. What, it, what yes. it's caused by. And one theory was put out early on, um, sort of tongue in cheek by an astronomer, suggesting it was what's called a Dyson sphere, which is a, a, a thing that uh, theoretically. Uh, has been suggested that alien civilizations could build around their star, sort of construct this big structure. Man, imagine something so big that it you know, surrounded the sun, uh, collected all the energy of that star. You'd have limitless energy for your civilization for as long as you like. Oh, so it seems like a logical good. thing for a. And so they suggested that this was caused by the variations in brightness with this thing being assembled. And it was sort of tongue in cheek, but anyway, <laughs> it, boy, it hit the headlines. You know, so I so everybody's been interested in Tabby Star ever since that. But it's still and, a and, puzzle. It's still no star has ever been seen that does this stuff before. And brilliant that amateurs found it. That's as well. right. I mean, and you know, a lot of discoveries are actually made by amateurs just because they've got time on their hands to sort of look at stuff and uh, don't have too many preconceived ideas. And they've got a deep passion. They do. You know. And so, yeah, so... Oh, that's, what that's what exciting. The evidence now is that the these dips in brightness that occur every, you know, like months or even a few years apart um, are caused by dust and they've actually been able to work out the size of the dust that's doing it because um, one of the suggestions the dips were caused by big cl uh, clusters of comets mm. or disintegration of a big comet or something like that but none of those things really worked uh, when you actually do the sums and analyse it um, and uh, but now they've found that there are uh, yeah, they've measured the dust size. You can won't get into the details of how you do that, but the astronomers can know they can figure out what the size of the dust particles are. Right. Okay, I was just going to ask that. What do you mean the dust or, size? Or coarse dust. Right. They have a different effect on in the light, the way that light comes through a cloud of dust. They can tell whether it's got big chunks or whether it's very fine 
sort of um, molecular almost size stuff. Okay. So yes, they can they can figure that out. So so basically, <laughs> it's uh, and and very fine dust. Of course, uh, if it forms, it doesn't hang around the star very long because the star's light blows it away. So this. You know, this, this, the pressure of sunlight is quite strong. It pushes right. satellites around. So, you know, it, fine dust particles are going to get swept away relatively soon. So if you're seeing fine dust, it must have formed quite soon mm -hmm. in the past, recently in the past, or it would have been blown away already. Right. So, um, so they think that something's breaking up and producing this stuff on a fairly short time scale. Um, so it's... Uh, it's yeah, they've narrowed it down. I think, you know, the, the scientific case is pretty clear that there's something, there's dust there, we don't know what. Um, there's been lots of other sort of great ideas sort of suggested. I mean, one is that the star, these regulations could have caused irregularities in the star's light output could have been caused by it swallowing a planet. Okay. I mean, we don't really know. We've never seen a star. <laughs> I was going to say, is that possible? It could potentially well, it, could be. Yeah, it yes. could be. I mean, you could have a situation where you've got planets are going around their star and uh, then some sort of decent-sized object happens to come through your solar system and goes close, disturbs the orbit of, some Mercury, mm -hmm. something like that. Mercury's orbit becomes unstable yep. and then soon or later takes a dive into the sun. And we don't know, theoreticians can't tell us exactly what that would do to the star as it has to swallow this sort of big football that goes into it and, and it takes a while to digest. I mean, the, the, something the size of mercury would be hanging together for quite a while. It's mainly sort of iron. Well, no, well that's probably a chain reaction I don't want and to be so, around to yeah, see. No, yeah. no, but so th those are the sort of issues that, uh, you know, it's, it's caused a sort of big serious sort of rethink and suggestion of interesting ideas to try and explain this and they're slowly narrowing in on it. The other positive thing about Tabby Star is it's been slowly fading over a century. They went through old Photographs. I mean, astronomers have been taking photographs of the sky, surveys and stuff, going back when it was all on big glass plates in the 19th century. And so you can actually go back through all these plates and even off photographs measure how bright it was. And what they did that and got all the data they could possibly get on the star and showed that it's been slowly fading for a century. And it's actually a fairly normal star. I mean, um, you know, it's, a bit, it's a little bit heavier than the sun. It's about 40% heavier than the sun and brighter. Um, but it's... It's a, well, it's not a young new star that's unstable or anything like that. Right. I mean, uh, our sun's output stays constant for millions and millions of years. So this thing's changing over a century is is pretty unusual and that nobody can figure out why that's doing that either. So. Well, and it sounds concerning too, actually. Um, okay, cool. Look, uh, time is just about out, but um, what's in the night sky? Is that how you end your segment? Yeah, sure. Okay, I mean, cool. What's in the night sky? What have we got? Okay, so the, there's a couple of things. Well, first of all, when the sun's just gone down, look towards the west. Yes. Uh, and about halfway up the sky, I'll say there's a bright star. That's the star Sirius. So that, that's the brightest star in the sky, in the western sky. Yeah. Um, if you look round to the right of there, into the northwest, you'll see a, a brighter object. That's the planet Venus. So keep an eye on Venus. Each night goes on. It's moving a little bit further up the sky, away from the sun as it's going around its orbit. It's getting brighter. It'll get dazzlingly bright nice. over the next few months. Okay, good. Um, good tip. Yeah. So and then in the in the if you turn around and look to the eastern side of the sky, the brightest object you'll see there is a sort of a tawny coloured 
object. That's planet Jupiter. Can't miss it, really. It's yep. the brightest thing in that part of the sky. Um, if you get out binoculars, you can, you know, you can even see the moons of Jupiter, which Galileo discovered in 1609. Just with binoculars? Binoculars will show that, yeah. Okay, Your cool. binoculars are miles better than anything Galileo had. Yeah, true. So, you know, you just got to hold them steady on a post or something or a windowsill. And know what you're looking at, which is why well, you're listening. Them, yes. And every night you look, they'll, they'll move. Okay. I mean, they move over a period of hours. You can see that the moons move. And you don't always see four of them because sometimes they're but one might be behind the planet or in the shadow of the planet or in front of the planet, in which case you won't see it with binoculars. But, you know, so uh, you won't always see four. Sometimes you might see three or two or stuff as well. Okay, good. Because the last time I pulled out my binoculars was to look at a boat in the ocean. So yeah, well, uh, this is good. Work this on is a bit more. And they don't yeah. have to be flash binoculars either. Okay, good. I love this. A good pair of binoculars for 100 bucks will do the job. Brilliant. Um, yeah, and so uh, then the next, uh, so you, the middle of the Milky Way's, near where Jupiter is. Jupiter is actually in the constellation Libra and a bit further around towards the horizon or later in the night to let it come up a bit higher, you get the sort of uh, Scorpius Sagittarius part of the sky. It's, uh, and Saturn is there as well. Now, you, Saturn, I can't really describe easily how to pick it out, but it's uh, sort of the brighter, it's brighter object in that part of the sky. And then later in the night, uh, there's quite a bright red object rising up and sort of by midnight it's sort of, you know, maybe a third or two, halfway up the sky in the east, that's Mars. And so Mars is going to get a lot brighter, as I say, as we close in on Mars over the next month and a half, Mars will get brighter. Um, and uh, so, so you've got all the bright planets. You've got Venus in the yes. early, Jupiter, Saturn and Mars. And they're all high in our sky. This is a great time for looking at planets. Uh, and a great time to uh, end. Thank you so much, Dr. Grant Christie. What an absolute pleasure. I've never been so excited about astronomy as I have today. And hopefully you at home as well have gotten excited. And if you want to check out that video that we talked about right at the start, uh, then it is on the website. Just go there and have a look. And uh, go and visit Grant one day at the Stardome Observatory. That'll be great. Yeah, thanks, Mike. The Weekend Variety Wireless with me, Mike Pudu, on your Saturday night. Hopefully you're having a fantastic evening no matter where you are listening to this fantastic radio station. Grant Christie, what a legend. That man knows a lot about the stars in the sky. I agree with Graham Hill from last week's show. That segment should be called Dancing with the Stars. Get your binoculars, go and have a look. Something I attended over the past few days was my very first field days. I lived in the Waikato for a wee while. Never been to the field days and then decided that while I was working in Hamilton, I should go and have a visit. What a sight. It's so well oiled, that machine. You park your car in a paddock. There are volunteers, 250 volunteers. They guide you to your car park and then all of a sudden a bus picks you up and takes you to the event. You scan your ticket, you walk down the hill and before you're not, boom, there you are with all these exhibitors from around the world, around New Zealand, showing off their wares. Farmers arrive. They start drinking pretty fast, I noticed. Midday, the beer halls were pretty full. But what an astounding event. I learned a lot. I saw a lot. And I was quite intrigued as to the history of field days. So up next, a little documentary that I found from Alan Riley on YouTube about the history of field days. So I'll share that with you in just a minute. One of the greatest observations I saw, apart from Jacinda Ardern walking everywhere, days away from having a baby, that blew my mind, uh, were, were the innovations, electric motorbikes for farms. That's where they're all moving. The other thing I noticed too, drones. 
A big market for drones in farming at the moment. And the drones can not only help farmers check stock, but there was one particular drone, get this, had a huge tank on it, you fill it up with your weed killer, you then fly your drone over your farm, you can see from the video footage where the weeds are, you send a little laser beam down to where the weed is and the drone goes down, zaps the weeds. Isn't that incredible? Farming from your armchair. It seems to be the future for farmers. So all of that is going on at Field Days. But how did it all start? Well, uh, initially with a scholarship and a man's brave idea to take it to the Waikato and grow it. There was one point where he had to get in a Land Rover and chase people. Why? You'll find out next. It's Radio Live, the Weekend Variety Wireless, with the history of the Field Days coming up next. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Weekend Variety Wireless with me, Mike Puru. Great to have your company. Just about 9 o'clock. News is coming up very soon. After 9 o'clock, movies with James Crute. We discuss Ocean's 8 and potentially the most scary movie of all time, is it? I don't know. Are you a horror fan? Not really. I don't get scared by scary movies. Or maybe I do with this one. Uh, then we'll discuss that a little later on. Max Cryer is in as well. But Field Days has wound up. And I thought, well, since it's Field Days last day today, maybe a history of Field Days is in order. Fifty years ago, John Kneebone, a Waikato farmer, won a Nuffield scholarship. This scholarship provided Mr Kneebone money and opportunities for him to travel around the world learning about new ways of farming, new inventions, new machines and ideas. After visiting shows in London, Mr Kneebone noticed farmers from all over the Northern Hemisphere were coming to London to see new machinery, see the exhibits in the show, but also to see the city it was based in. What he saw in London he thought would work really well in Hamilton and while travelling by train, he wrote to the editor of the Waikato Times about his idea. The following year, John Kneebone, the Hamilton Mayor, the editor of the Waikato Times, two federated farmers, an ag research representative, an AMP show member, and the vice-chancellor, Sir Don Llewellyn, of the brand new Waikato University, met to discuss his idea. After debating, changing and rethinking the idea, they came up with three aims. Promotion of agricultural research and innovations, to unify town and country communities, and to attract significant events and exhibitions from New Zealand and overseas. The first event was called the Waikato Town and Country Festival and was held at the Tarapa Racecourse in June 1969. Originally scheduled for a three-week festival of sports, marching girls and bands, this was refined down to two days of agriculturally themed exhibitions and demonstrations. Parking at the racecourse was a challenge, with traffic being backed up to the main street of Hamilton. Visitors frustrated with the traffic abandoned their cars on the roadsides and poured over the fences and through the gates of the racecourse without paying. Sir Don Llewellyn saw this, leapt into his Range Rover and collected money from those jumping the fences. An expected 3,000 visitors swelled to 10,000 people at the first event. Agricultural displays were varied, including an aerial top dressing display with helicopters, DC-3 and a crash from the Widowmaker. The Widowmaker, a plane with a bad reputation for crashing, stalled on a low manoeuvre and it bounced across the grass heading for the crowd. The pilot managed to display amazing skill to steer away from the masses into a parked fertiliser truck. Aviation fuel did spurred everywhere with smoking bystanders flocking to the site for a closer look. However, nothing caught fire and the pilot sustained moderate injuries. 
1970, the Tarapa event saw the Queen and Duke and her children attend, now known widely as the New Zealand National Field Days. The Society credited the success of these early events to sticking to the plan, hard-working, dedicated people from all walks of life and support from local and central government. In 1971, the Mystery Creek property was found and with work, it would become the perfect venue. The property was purchased with a 100% loan from the ANZ Bank, mainly based on the good name of the members of the society. Mountains of work was required to turn the farm site into a showground. To achieve this, community leaders mucked in for no financial gain, working hard and ignoring their own properties, developing the site because they believed in its vision. Ozzie James once stated, There hasn't been a society member who hasn't felt good about the work we were doing. We've created a sense of belonging. In 1980, Dame Te Ingalangi Kahu opened the event and donated a ceremonial core carved at Turanga Waiwai. It was the first presentation of its type in the world. Moving to 2016, the event is still moving from strength to strength. A thousand exhibitors showcased their goods at over 1,400 sites. 130,000 people came through the gates, firmly cementing New Zealand National Field Days as the largest and most successful agricultural event in the Southern Hemisphere. It's incredible. That there from Alan Riley off YouTube. Uh, incredible event. I, I hadn't been there. I lived in Hamilton for a while. I had not been there until just in the last few days. And an amazing amount of money must pass through those gates. Uh, so credit to everybody involved. And if you would like to do some weeding with the drone, well, that's just one of the things I saw. A drone that can do your weeding. Bless field days. It's coming up 9 o'clock. The latest news, sport and weather is on the way. We'll see how the All Blacks are going. Also after 9 o'clock, movies with James Crute. Max Cryer with words. It is the weekend variety wireless. Mike Pudu filling in for Graham Hill.